the Jodcast, where black holes aren't just found in black socks. With Scott Higginbottom, Libby Jones, Ian McDonald, Mark Perber, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, March 2011, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Scott, Libby and Christina. Hello. Hi. Hello. In this month's extra show, Libby talks to Dr. Jay Farihi about how he plans to use ALMA and Dr. Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, here's Libby talking to Professor Derek Ward-Thompson about the early stages of star formation. Joining me today is Professor Derek Ward-Thompson from the University of Cardiff, Derek works on the formation of stars. Would you please like, tell us how stars form to start off with? Yes, well, it all begins in the space between the stars. Space isn't completely empty between the stars. But there is a very small amount of gas and dust that we call the interstellar medium. Now, if you had a test tube full of this interstellar medium in the lab, it would constitute a very good vacuum because space is pretty empty. But the fact is that it's not completely empty, uh, and it's this little amount of gas and dust in your test tube that eventually will form the next generation of stars. And the reason why it does is because space is so big, you've essentially got an awful lot of test tubes full of interstellar medium out in space, and all of matter uh, experiences gravity, as we know. And under the gravity of all of this matter, it gradually falls together, um, just as you would fall if you jumped off a tall building <laughs> under gravity, and it all collects together in the centre to form a star. And that's all well and good. We think we understand at least some of the aspects of that. Now, you might say, what's this interstellar medium made of? And it's very largely uh, hydrogen gas with some traces of helium and uh, various other elements. And then about 1% of it is dust. And this dust is largely in the form of what we call silicates, and silicate is just sand, like the sand on the beach, except the grains of dust in the interstellar medium are very much smaller than the grains of sand on the beach. Uh, they're much more like, for example, the size of grains of tobacco smoke. And as you're aware, light has difficulty penetrating tobacco smoke, looking across a smoke-filled room, and so in order to see through the dust, we go to much longer wavelengths. And so we're quite excited at the moment about a new telescope, which is going to work at these much longer wavelengths, that's currently being built in the Atacama Desert, high up in the Andes of Chile. And this telescope is called ALMA, which stands for the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And because it works at such long wavelengths, it can see into the dust, so it can help us in understanding this process of stars as they're forming. So this lets you penetrate through, like in the optical, just dark regions of space. This lets you see straight through to these regions. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that I've been working on myself lately is looking at double stars or binary stars. Now, the listeners will probably be familiar with the double star in Ursa Major, Mizar and Alcor, 
which is uh, in fact a double double star. But a double star or a binary star is where you have one star which orbits another. And we believe that for a lot of them, they actually form at the same time and they form together. And up to now, we've not been able to see these in the process of forming. But with this new telescope, we expect to be able to, to see a lot, a lot of these double stars in the process of forming. What makes a double star formation different from a single star formation? Well, that's a very good question, and we're still trying to understand the processes that are going on. But what we think must be happening is that the interstellar medium that in the first case, out of which the, the stars are going to form, is actually rotating. So it's spinning. And there's a process that we call the conservation of angular momentum, which is where as things get smaller, they have to spin faster. And your listeners will be familiar, no doubt, with the example of uh, a figure skater on ice who spins around with their arms held out wide. And then when they pull their arms into their sides, they spin faster, they spin up faster. And that's the conservation of angular momentum. And what we see when one of these clouds of interstellar medium collapses under its own gravity is that if it is spinning very slowly even to start with, then as it collapses and gets smaller, it will spin faster and faster. And if there's enough spin, then instead of the material all collapsing down to one point in the centre, it might collapse to two or more different points, uh, which might then explain how you end up with a double star or perhaps a double-double star even. So how many could it collapse into? Oh, many. We see many examples of double stars, of triple stars, of double doubles. There are many different types of system. Uh, I, I suspect there probably isn't an upper limit, but the most common are the doubles. And th these are the ones we're trying to understand. And in particular, with the telescopes we've got at the moment, we can get a glimpse of some of this. But obviously, with the new ALMA telescope, we'll get to see a lot more detail of this. But there's one particular double star that we've been looking at in the constellation of Ophiuchus, where we believe it's a double star, but the two stars themselves are spinning around different axes so the spins are misaligned to each other and this is very difficult to explain if the original interstellar medium is just rotating or, or spinning in, in a single direction why should then these two stars be spinning in different directions by the time they've formed and one of the explanations might be that perhaps these initial conditions are very chaotic and you have material moving in different directions. Now you might say what actually causes this rotation, this spin in the first place? Um, and there are a number of ways it might start. We already know that all of our Milky Way galaxy is orbiting around the centre of the galaxy, what we call the galactic centre, just in the same way as the planets orbit around the Sun. And the further we are from the centre of the galaxy, the slower we rotate, the slower we orbit. Um, and so if material comes from different distances from the uh, centre of the galaxy and comes together under its own gravity, then it might be moving at different velocities, different speeds, and hence have different amounts of rotation. And that might be what causes the spin-up in the first place. Now, if that's the case, then 
what we would see is is the picture I outlined earlier of perhaps two or more stars, but all spinning in the same direction. In order to get them to spin in different directions, we need really much more chaotic conditions. Um, and perhaps what this is telling us is that the interstellar medium is a much more chaotic place than we thought. So what could cause this chaos? Oh, all sorts of things. Um, the most energetic, perhaps, is uh, a supernova explosion. So, as your listeners will be aware, um, some stars, when they die, uh, die very energetically with a, a gigantic explosion, which shoots material at very, very high speeds off into, into space. And this travels through the interstellar medium, stirring it up, uh, very greatly and, and causing, causing it to be moved around at very high velocities. Now, there are also slightly less energetic things, such as the winds from stars. Now, we all know the sun has what we call the solar wind, but in fact, all stars have a, a wind like the solar wind, and these stir up the interstellar medium slightly more gently than uh, a supernova explosion, but this can all contribute to these chaotic motions. And maybe one of the things that we will learn is that the interstellar medium is in fact a very chaotic place, and that perhaps misaligned spinning double stars might actually be the norm rather than the exception. So at the moment these are very, very rare and you've only seen one or two. That's correct. We've seen perhaps a handful, but we don't know whether that's just simply as a result of the fact of our current telescopes not being sufficiently sensitive. Because remember, even a telescope like the Hubble Space Telescope still only works at visible wavelengths and so suffers from the same problem as all other visible telescopes that it can't see into the uh, the centers of these things because of the dust the the smoke filled room blocking off the light and this alma will be the first time we will ha have have had access to a very long wavelength telescope that can see into the smoke filled room but with sufficient resolution to be able to resolve these double stars in the process of forming, um, and maybe to answer the question whether the misaligned spinning double stars are actually the norm rather than the exception. So this would revolutionise the star formation? It has the, it has the potential to, uh, to completely shift our ideas of what's going on. So of course it's a very exciting time. Now these things are very difficult to observe because the whole process is over relatively quickly in astronomical terms. It only takes roughly a million to ten million years for a star to form. So how much is that in terms of a star's lifetime? Oh, that's only a very small fraction of, of the total lifetime of a star. A star can live for a few billion years. So in astronomical terms, a million years is the blinking of an eye. Now in human terms, obviously, it's it's a little bit longer than that. But what we have to do is look around in, in, in space for stars that are exactly at this time in their lives when they are forming during this one or two million years um, and try and catch them in, in, in the process. So a star forms very, very quickly in terms of lifetime and... I guess you have to look around for lots and lots of objects to try and catch 
that's going on. That's exactly right. And of course, what determines uh, how long it takes is, is not only the conditions that you have initially in the interstellar medium, but also uh, the mass of the star that you're trying to form. So a star the same mass as, as the sun might take a few million years, but one that's considerably more massive might only take a million years. Um, and so, as you say, we have to look around in, in different parts of, of our local, as we call it, space. I, I should define what I mean by local there. The, the double star I was talking about in Ophiuchus is something like about 500 light years away. But uh, in astronomical terms, that's right next door. And so we're looking at stars at these kind of distances. And that's, of course, why we need the resolution to be able to see what's going on. So these stars emitting light yet, or are they still not even in that stage of their formation? That's right, they're not even in that stage yet. They're, they're emitting what we call infrared radiation, which is, of course, just heat. And it's this heat from the stars that we're, that we're detecting. But certainly they haven't turned into what we would think of as a star yet. They certainly don't burn in the same way as the sun burns. The, the energy from the sun comes from uh, nuclear reactions, the hydrogen being turned into helium, which is exactly the same reaction as, as happens in an H-bomb. But that reaction isn't actually happening yet in these stars. They haven't got together enough mass to make that switch on. But what we're actually looking at is just the heat from these uh, these objects as they're warming up, as they're collapsing, and that's what we're detecting. And do these objects tend to form with massive stars together or a massive star and a little star together or any combination of this? We see all varieties. You see some some double stars where the two stars are the same size. You see others where one is ten times the size of the other and, and, and everything in between, really. So, again, trying to understand what would determine that is also a big question. Uh, we believe this particular one in Ophiuchus might be forming two of roughly the same size. But uh, again, that will depend on, on how their evolution progresses. And this is what we need Alma for, to see into this new, well, hidden world of uh, star formation. Exactly. That's that's, that's right. We're, we're looking forward to, to taking these, these new observations, which hopefully will be taken sometime next year. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us on the Jogcast. And thank you for inviting me. Thanks for that, Libby. Up next, we have the last ALMA interview, with Libby talking to Dr. Jay Farihi about detecting terrestrial planets using white dwarfs. Joining me today is Dr. Jay Farihi from the University of Leicester, whose research is onto white dwarfs and has found some really cool results from these. So let's take it away, Jay. Uh, well, uh, white dwarfs are the end state of stars. They're uh, like the death of stars, we, we often say. Uh, supernovae and black holes and white dwarfs are the three possibilities for uh, the death of stars. But white dwarfs are what happen 99% of the time. Supernovae and black holes are very exciting, but they happen very rarely in our galaxy and in the universe at large. So uh, the fate of most stars in our galaxy will be to become white dwarfs eventually. And in fact, that's what our sun will be one day. And I'm trying to answer the question of what will planetary systems like ours look like when they get to the white dwarf stage. So you have detected some metals, and then metals mean anything sort of not hydrogen or helium in astronomical terms, through these white dwarfs. Can you tell us a bit about this and what this means for the fate of our solar system? Yeah, um, well, 
theoretically, some time ago, people figured out that because white dwarfs are the Earth-sized, but they contain about a sun's worth of mass in this kind of compact Earth-shaped body or Earth-sized body, uh, it leads to very high gravity. So if you were standing on the surface of the white dwarf, the gravity that you would feel would be 100,000 times stronger than the Earth. So what happens is if you drop some elements heavier than hydrogen or helium, they sink really rapidly due to that strong gravity. And this, what, what essentially happens is uh, after the stellar death and all the kind of leftover stuff from the planetary nebula phase, uh, this all sinks away very quickly. And what we found is, uh, surprisingly, uh, you know, a few hundred million years or a billion years later into this white dwarf stage, we see uh, the atmospheric signature of heavy elements or, or metals in their atmosphere. And it's surprising because they shouldn't be there. They should sink away. And so the fact that we see them tells us that something is putting them there. They're coming from the outside. They're not intrinsic to the star because once they sink away, they can't come back up. So something's putting them there. And we initiated a program with the Spitzer Space Telescope several years ago to look for the culprit of uh, the kind of the, the metal culprit, so to speak. And what we found is uh, a significant portion of these white dwarfs with metals have rocky debris circling right on top of them, which we think is responsible for these uh, heavy elements. So where could these rocky debris come from? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, in fact, the debris we see uh, around these stars, uh, we call them debris disks or, you know, dust disks. And these are these are known at main sequence stars. For example, one of the brightest stars in the sky, Vega, is one of the first to 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 the first stars known to have a debris disk. And the ones at White Dwarfs are very different. At the main sequence stars, the dust disks are analogous to the Kuiper belt, so that they're, you know, tens of AU away, tens of Earth-Sun distances away. They're generally cold dust belts, uh, like our Kuiper belt. And the ones at White Dwarfs are actually right on top of the star. The Earth-sized star, together with the dust around the White Dwarf, is, is to, it's together smaller than our Sun, roughly speaking. And so the dust is so close, it's very warm, and in order for that to get there, something has to have come very close to the star and become uh, gravitationally torn apart. And the process is exactly analogous to Saturn's rings. So that Saturn's rings were formed when a proto-moon or a passing comet got too close to Saturn and gravity to torn apart. And the way that happens is when you get really close to something, uh, gravity will be stronger on the face of it than it is on the back of it. And that's just because gravity is a one over r squared law. And this is the same effect that happens between the Earth and the Moon. The tides are raised by the pull of the Moon on the Earth. And so we think something's come too close to the white dwarf and has been gravitationally shredded and has left this debris uh, right on top of the star. So what size of objects are we talking about? Are we talking about little asteroids? Are we talking bigger things? Are we talking about Pluto-y size? objects? Well, uh, we think the best description right now is large asteroids, and that's uh, things that are about 150 kilometers in diameter, possibly bigger. We don't have, uh, we don't have a, an accurate uh, estimate of the masses, but we have good lower limits, and the lower limits in most cases are these kind of large asteroid 
uh, size, 150 kilometer object. In a few cases, uh, the object was probably at least as massive as uh, Vesta in a few cases, which is the second largest asteroid in our solar system. And maybe in one or two cases as large as Ceres, which is the most massive asteroid. But these are the minimum masses, so these things could actually be bigger. They could be something like a moon or a major planet. We're not sure. And are these systems, have you seen them all over the sky? Are they close by to us? Are they are this common? Well, uh, the nearest one is, uh, so the nearest star, uh, Alpha Centauri, is, is uh, about a par roughly a parsec away. So the nearest white dwarf with dust is 14 times as far away. But we, we still consider that nearby. It's very far, of course, but 14 parsecs is the nearest one, and there are a few within 50 parsecs of the sun. Um, it looks like they occur, get, take a random white dwarf, you have a probability of a few percent of seeing a disk. So there are only about a hundred white dwarfs within this kind of distance and so we only know of a few. So only a few percent of them show it. So nearby, a few, a little bit further out, a few more. So these white dwarf systems, they've had some big rocky bodies surrounding them that have been fallen in by gravity. The other type of white dwarf, so these just not had the big rocky bodies around them? Well, this the disks that we see are certainly a lower limit to uh, the systems which still have rocks around them or rocky objects, planets, moons. Uh, it's a It's a lower limit because we only see those where the asteroid comes in and gets destroyed and gives us these signatures. So the the ones with disks are only a couple of percent, but the ones polluted with metals are more like 20 to 30 percent. But again, that's still a lower limit to the systems which probably still have rocky planetary systems because maybe some of them are out there and they just haven't had their asteroids thrown around within the last few years so we don't see them. So, I mean... From a picture of terrestrial planet formation, I think the quick quick and dirty answer is at least 2% and possibly as many as 20 or 30% have rocky planetary systems. And the interesting thing is, is these white dwarfs have come from stars like our sun, a little bit more massive, yeah, a little bit, but not too much. And so what it's telling us is that between a few percent, but probably more like 20, 30% of stars similar to our sun form terrestrial planets. And the analogy is because the asteroids in our solar system are actually leftovers from terrestrial planet formation. And uh, the main asteroid belt wanted to become a planet, a, a fifth terrestrial planet, but it couldn't because Jupiter's gravity is too strong. It keeps it. So if these are asteroid analogs, then they're telling us that terrestrial planets form at stars like our sun uh, at least a few percent and probably a few tens of a percent of the time. So Earth-like planets are common across our galaxy and possibly in other galaxies as well? I would say so. Uh, I, I can't really comment on other galaxies, but I see no reason why other galaxies should be different than the Milky Way. And yes, I would say that uh, conservatively, uh, that Earth-like planets are built, you know, several percent of the time, and more more likely a few tens of percent of the time. I mean, it's conservative to say that because that's what we have evidence for. But it. From a, a point of view of when stars form, you know, they have to shed 99% of their angular momentum. This is kind of like the ice skater analogy, you know, and you really, uh, it seems hard to get around forming planets. But 
it, it's nice to, to, you know, not just make a hand-waving argument like that. We have rocky objects at at least a few and probably a few tens of percent of white dwarfs, and, and that tells us that rocky planet formation is, is almost certainly common. So something interesting you said today was that we should start stop thinking about single stars and should start thinking about stars and the planets surrounding them because that's going to have some effect at least. Maybe now with the new generation telescopes we may be able to see this better. Is that going to be the case? Well, I, I think we're already uh, we're already seeing those kinds of things, uh, but uh, it's hard to give uh, it's hard to give some specific examples because it, sometimes it involves some technical stuff. But one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, I kind of come from a background of of learning about uh, paradigm changes when I was in university, and I found this idea really interesting because it's you know people say these silly phrases like thinking out of the box. But this is a really big box whose walls we often don't see. And when you go to meetings and you talk to astronomers who've studied a certain thing their whole lives and they've just been accustomed to a way of thinking, and they say, well, we see this certain shape of gas and dust around a star, and, uh, you know, we think there's a binary companion, so it's two... So by binary you mean double two stars. stars. Yeah, so they think it's two stars. And I say to them, I said, well, you know, why can't it be a planet? We know that these are really common now. And, and they've been thinking about binary stars, two stars, their whole career. And they've not even considered planets, even though now we've known about extrasolar planets for 15 years. And I just try to encourage them. It's like, well, stars almost certainly come with planets, and they may come with planets 100% of the time. And so I think it's time for people who study stars to start thinking about what the planetary system does. That's really cool, what all these planets possibly to see. How long does it take for the debris to fall into the white dwarf from orbiting yeah. around them? We don't know. Uh, that's a common answer, but it's not a very helpful answer. We think that it could be a very long time. For example, Saturn's rings, there's a debate on the age of Saturn's rings, but one school of thought is that they, they could be ancient meaning that they could be nearly as old as our planetary system, so on the order of 5 billion years. Uh, I tend to support that point of view because uh, the starlight that uh, hits Saturn's rings uh, would cause a kind of a drag force or a damping force or slowing down of the particles orbiting Saturn's rings, uh, and so they would kind of fall onto Saturn. You would, you would think that. That's an idea, one idea. But it turns out that Saturn's rings actually stop before Saturn's surface, and there's a gap there. And so that's as far as Saturn's rings have gotten to the surface of Saturn. They haven't fallen in as however old they are. And so we think it's a similar phenomenon at the disks of white dwarfs as they act like planetary rings. And uh, the light from a white dwarf is really feeble. They're really small and dim. And so we don't think the light drag is, is very strong. And so the only thing pushing them towards the surface is just, just kind of like billiard balls bouncing around. It's just rocks bumping into each other. And it, it's not a very strong force. So they actually could persist for millions of years. It's probably, uh, it's probably driven by however much material there is and whatever rate they do fall on is just as long as it takes to eat it. That's how long they'll last. Uh, that's not a great answer, I know, but it could be millions of years, probably at least a few thousand. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the Jugcast, it's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Libby. And I'd also like to say thank you to Jay, 
we spoke to him in Nam in Glasgow last year, but the interview got corrupted, so this was our second chance at talking to him. So yay for being a good sport and being interviewed twice. And also actually for Derek as well. This is an interview twice because I forgot to press record the first time. So sorry for both of you for being having to be interviewed twice, but yay for doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's the last of all the armor interviews, but the early science is going to start soon. So hopefully in the next year or two, we're going to see some really interesting groundbreaking results with this telescope. And I'm sure the Jogcast will be there to tell you all about it. Seems to cover a very wide range of topics in astronomy. It does. It can do so many phenomenal things. It's excellent. So now it's time for that part of the show that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. First up, Space Shuttle Discovery landed for its final time on 9th of March, and this signals the end of a 27-year career, in which it has spent 365 days in space in total. On its last mission, it delivered a new storeroom and a humanoid robot called Robonaut 2, also known as R2. Um... (laughs) (laughs) That's just so cool. To the ISS, it is a very cool robot. Because it's humanoid, it doesn't actually need any special tools. It can use all of the ones that the astronauts use. This signals the beginning of the end of the space shuttles at NASA. Endeavour is the next one to be retired, and it's currently, on the 11th of March, sitting on the launch pad, waiting to be launched on the April 19th is when it's scheduled. And after that, Atlantis will run its final flight, and that will be the end. It's a sad time for all the space shuttles. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise they've been running for so long, though. 27 years, that's yeah, That's phenomenal. as old as me. <laughs> and I'm not ready to be retired yet. 39 flights in 27 years. So tell me a bit more about this um, robot, R2. Well, he weighs 300 pounds and he's actually humanoid when you look at him. Currently, he's just kind of waist up. There are no legs attached, but they are hoping to send leg attachments up over the next year or so. I'm quite hoping that they call those D2 just for fun. Um, <laughs> well, they have to do it. R2-D2, the robot in space. Until then, it's going to be fixed to a pedestal and it's going to undergo lots of testing to make sure that it didn't undergo any damage in flight or anything. It's dexterous enough so that it can use the tools that astronauts use and can handle a wide range of spacewalk-related tools and interfaces. Pretty interesting stuff. Pretty awesome to look at and I'll link to a picture in the show notes. But surely to do the spacewalk, it's going to need its D2 legs. Right? Yes, or attached to something that can go outside. Ooh, a bit like Wally. There's a picture of it attached to some sort of rover on NASA where they tested it on different things and on previous ones, so they just seem to attach half a person to something and go. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to see these pictures. (laughs) But amidst all that, there was a rather inglorious failure. Sorry, (laughs) you'll see what that pun means in a minute for NASA as they launched a climate change satellite which unfortunately didn't make it all the way up into space. It was named Glory, but upon launch it failed to detach from the Taurus rocket that was taking it up there, and so it went up and straight back down again, and rather than being in space, it's now somewhere in the sea. So can they go and recover this rocket and use it again? Apparently no one knows exactly where it is, so no, and it's probably not in very good condition anyway. How can you not know... My car has GPS. How has a space rocket not got GPS? You'd think they'd be able to find it with the amount of money they spend on it. Oh, well. So if anyone does spot where this rocket is and you find it, you can call NASA and the Jogcast and we'll... Well, we won't go and rescue it, but be interesting to know where it landed anyway. <laughs> Probably at the bottom of an ocean somewhere. Okay, so further to my rant in the last Jodcast regarding whether Pluto should have been demoted as a planet, I've found yet more evidence to back up my claim. 
The Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, or PANSTARS, is a optical telescope which looks out into space to look for asteroids that could be coming anywhere near Earth. The intention being that they will spot them with enough time so Bruce Willis and his team of miners can get out there and save us all while listening to Aerosmith. But recently they spotted 19 near-Earth asteroids whizzing across the sky in a single night. So this is quite a lot, actually, to see in such a short span of time. So far they've found over 1,200 potentially hazardous asteroids. Which leads me to my point. The International Astronomical Union, their definition of a planet, and thus the one that got Pluto demoted states that any planet has to be able to clear its neighbourhood around its orbit of any material that's there. So if we've got this many asteroids within our orbit, maybe we shouldn't be a planet. But Jupiter also has some bodies that hang around in its orbit and just manage to stay out of the way, called the Trojans. So perhaps that whole criterion is a little bit questionable. Yes, I think think in all honesty it probably says more about the definition than it does our actual status. We probably are actually a planet, but we need to revise this definition a bit and hopefully revise it so Pluto can come back. If you were going to include Pluto, then you'd have to include all the other little minor planets that are hopping around in the solar system like Ceres and Eris, and then we'd just have a ridiculously large number of planets. Maybe then the naming criteria, like the criteria of whether Pluto should be a planet, should just be that is the criteria. The planets are these eight and Pluto. (laughs) That should be the criteria. All right, well, let's leave it at that. So from the Earth to the Moon, this one's very topical because it relates to something that's just happened within the last 24 hours of doing this recording, and that's the massive earthquake in Japan. It's been reported on a number of news sites, which you'd think would be a bit more reputable, that the Moon's proximity to the Earth might have caused this earthquake. And you might not be surprised to hear that really that's a bit of pseudoscience. There's absolutely no evidence to back it up. So why would the moon have caused a massive earthquake? Well, exactly. The argument is because it's rather closer than normal. The moon, of course, exerts a gravitational pull on the Earth, just as the Earth does on the moon. And because the moon is quite close to us, there's a measurable difference between the force from the moon on the side of the Earth that's furthest away from it compared to the force from the moon on the side of the Earth that's closest to it. And it's this that we call tidal forces. It's really a difference between two forces. And this gives us tides in the sea. But it also has some effect not only on water on the Earth, but on the whole of the Earth itself, including the solid part, and, of course, the inner part of the Earth underneath the crust. And the tidal forces will be more significant when the Moon is closer to the Earth. It's an elliptical orbit anyway, so each month sometimes it's a bit closer, sometimes it's a bit further away. But because of the perturbations from the Sun, there are also certain orbits where it just happens to be a bit closer than others and this happens quite regularly and it's it's actually about eight days away from being at one of its closest points for quite a number of years but the amount that it's closer by is, is less than the the variation that happens during an ordinary month anyway so it's really not a very large effect and in addition to that of course the biggest effect that we ever see from the moon is the daily effect of the tides as the earth rotates so if this so-called supermoon, if you want to know the term there's lots of air quotes going on at the moment in the studio. <laughs> the supermoon, in very large air quotes. If that were to be the cause of natural disasters, then you'd really expect the daily effect to cause 
a lot of earthquakes as well. And there are many much smaller earthquakes that happen all the time on the Earth. And there's been no correlation shown between that and the moon. So really, despite the fact that this has appeared in a number of well-known publications, there's really no evidence that the moon has anything to do with natural disasters on the Earth. But this moon being so close will mean we'd be able to get some pretty spectacular pictures, right? Yeah, you should be able to see it looking a fair bit bigger. It's something like 10% closer, I think, of that order than usual. So you should be able to get some good photos. So on the 19th of March, the moon is going to be at its closest. So get out there with your telescopes and hopefully get some good pictures and send them to us. On a bit of a lighter note, Australians are developing a space beer. It's a heavy stout called Vostok. After the Yuri Gagarin mission 50 years ago, this beer is stronger because your taste buds swell up in space and it's less carbonated so you don't have any nasty gas effects going on in your body. Obviously in zero gravity you don't want the gas expanding in your stomach. Previously a Japanese company made a space beer but this was from barley grown in space on the International Space Station and then it was brought back down and then they brewed it and that was quite a carbonated beverage. But this space beer by the Australians is quite a different order. Also they've been testing it but hopefully not on the vomit comet. And hopefully they haven't been testing it with any astronauts that have to fly any spaceships. Oh yeah, drunk in charge of space shuttle, a new rule, you can't have that. R2 could come in and save the day, leave him there, fly in the little ship, go have beers with your friends in the back. So there you go. <laughs> Australians had the priorities right, after food, shelter, water, you have beer in space, so it's all preparation for the space tourism. Still not answered where you're going to get your after beer kebab though. That's the next challenge. Freeze-dried kebab. Yum. <laughs> so now it's time for Libby to put your questions on astronomy to Dr Ian MacDonald. Hello, Ian. Hello. Bjorna Johansson says, For two decades now I've been aware that the Big Bang Theory is just a theory. What has happened to the other cosmological models? OK, I'm going to focus on three words from that. Just a theory. Because it highlights a common misconception that a theory is somehow unaccepted by the scientific community or something that's not the only viable explanation. Now, I'm reading from the Oxford English Dictionary here, which lists a theory as a hypothesis that has been confirmed or established by observation or experiment, and is propounded or accepted as accounting for the known facts. Now, an example of this is Newton's theory of gravity, that explains gravity as we see it in everyday situations. No one thinks that gravity doesn't exist, but still called just a theory. Now, it turns out Newton's gravity is incomplete, we need Einstein's theory of gravity to explain gravity fully. And so far, Einstein and Newton's theory of gravity has explained most gravitational phenomena we see. Come back to that in the next question. But still, gravity is just a theory because it doesn't explain where gravity fundamentally comes from. For that, we need particle physics. Now, the Big Bang is also just a theory, but it explains what we see around us. Now, we see galaxies in the universe moving away from each other, and that means space is expanding. If it's expanding, the universe must have been smaller in the past, and so there must have been a point where the universe was very small. This is where the Big Bang Theory comes from. Now, a Big Bang would leave some very predictable signatures that would tell us about the early universe. One such prediction was the cosmic microwave background, created when hydrogen recombined when the universe was only 380,000 years old. Finding the cosmic microwave background, the ripples in it that eventually gave rise to the galaxies we see around us today, has earned two Nobel Prizes. And the Big Bang is the only theory that is being pursued because it's the only one that explains the universe around us. This may not be the complete picture, like Newton's theory of gravity, 
but so far that explains the birth of the universe very well. Our next question comes from Nick Cook. Does dark matter really exist, or have we misunderstood gravity? Now this is a very tricky question, it's a touchy subject for many people. Basically put, the outer parts of galaxies are rotating faster than they should be. Now galaxies rotate because the stars within them are orbiting the centre of the galaxy. The theory of gravity says that the orbital velocity of a star is proportional to the square root of the mass inside the star's orbit over the square root of the radius of that orbit. So if a star is orbiting too fast, that means that the galaxies are heavier than they look. Now we can measure how much normal matter there is in a galaxy by measuring how much light it gives off. So if there's too much mass in a galaxy, there must be more dark matter that we can't see. So goes the theory. In this case, there is another theory that explains the observations. It's called MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. This basically says that Einstein's theory of gravity is incomplete, and that there's an extra force of gravity that only becomes important on the scale of galaxies. Now at present, both theories explain the observations. Most scientists generally think that dark matter explains the observations a little better, but presently there's no way to tell conclusively. We need to keep testing both theories until one is found not to work. Until then, the general consensus seems to be to keep assuming that dark matter is real until some good evidence comes along to the contrary. Is there any form of evidence that can show dark matter is around? Well, we can see um, dark matter around if we see the particles that are responsible for it. Now, there's various things that could explain it. The Higgs boson that's being looked for in CERN might have some mass, and that might go some way to explaining what dark matter is. There could be some dark objects out there, like black holes or free-floating planets, that might be too cool for us to see, or there might be a whole host of other things that we just haven't thought of yet. Our final question comes from Susan Kelly, who wants to know, what exactly is heat? Heat is simply vibration. It's a measure of how much atoms and molecules in a substance are vibrating. There's a temperature known as absolute zero, which is minus 273 degrees centigrade, which is the lowest temperature you can get. This is where all vibration stops. Now, the hotter a substance gets, the more the atoms vibrate. As you heat up a solid, it melts because the bonds between atoms are shaken apart. If you heat a liquid up, it vaporises because the atoms are bashed out of the material that it's in. Eventually, if you heat up a gas enough, it becomes a plasma as the electrons are knocked off its atoms. Now, there's two ways to transfer heat. The first is simply to transfer the vibrations inside the substance. For example, if you heat up a saucepan, you'll find that the handle eventually heats up as well. That's just because these vibrations are travelling up the saucepan handle. Now, the second way to transfer heat is via light. All objects give off light. The amount of light and the wavelength of that light differs according to the temperature that they're at. Cool objects, about room temperature, tend to give off infrared radiation. Light at wavelengths longer than red. Hot objects, like the sun, also give off infrared radiation, but most of the light is put out at shorter wavelengths. For example, things that are about 2,000 degrees centigrade glow red. Things that are about 6,000 degrees centigrade, like the sun, glow yellow. Things that are about 10,000 degrees centigrade glow white. The very hottest things go blue, or even ultraviolet, but this sneeze temperatures in excess of about 100,000 degrees centigrade, so pretty hot. The light that hot objects gives off eventually hits other objects. Some of it is reflected, and some of it is absorbed. The amount of light that's absorbed depends on the wavelength of that light and the substance it hits. When materials absorb radiation, the energy from the radiation is absorbed too. The shorter the wavelength, the more energy it provides. This energy heats objects up, and this is how heat from the sun heats up the earth. Many common molecules like water and carbon dioxide absorb very well at infrared wavelengths. This is why microwaves use very long wavelength infrared radiation, 
And why releasing more CO2 into the atmosphere is generally a bad idea, because it absorbs light from the sun very effectively in infrared, and the infrared light that the Earth emits itself. Now this warms up the CO2, and so in doing so, warms up the Earth's surface. So when we're looking at the stars through telescopes, for instance Betelgeuse, we see it's red. We know that's a relatively cool star compared to our sun. And if we can see a blue star, we know that's much hotter. Yes, um, Betelgeuse, for example, is about 3,500 degrees centigrade, uh, whereas a hot star like Vega might be at 10,000 degrees centigrade. Awesome. So you can now get an idea of how hot a star is by just looking at them. Exactly. Thank you to Bjorna, Nick and Susan for sending in their questions. And if anyone else has a question you'd like to send into the Jogcast, you can do so via the website. Thank you for that, Ian and Libby. So now let's round up some of your feedback. This half month, we have some post! Yay! Yay. Yeah, you go post! We love post! (laughs) But it's cheating again, isn't it? Yes, it's cheating. It's from Chris, who is now a postdoc at Caltech. And he sent us a postcard from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Got it right in front of me, and it's a very cool postcard. And he's also encouraging people over there to listen to the Jogcast. So, hello, guys, new Jogcast listeners. Yeah, I got very excited when I went into the, the post room this morning and saw a postcard. I was like, yeah! It was very happy times. So, yay, postcards! We're easily amused. <laughs> Oi! <laughs> We've had a couple of emails, the first of which is from Lee Gardner, who listens to us while working the night shift. We've also had an email from Adrian Chalinor, who particularly liked Dr. Hiranya Pieris's interview about the cosmic microwave background and what it can tell us about the early universe. She's really happy about the positive feedback, so thank you very much. On the forum, we've had Joda the Oak, Earth Unit and Susan Kay all telling us about what the Jodcast has inspired them to do, which has included buying telescopes, visiting big telescopes and even planning to do an online Masters in Astronomy. We're having a big influence here. Brilliant. Bringing people into the fold. And on Twitter, we've had lots and lots of feedback. Well, George Wapank has had lots and lots of feedback and even started trending globally with the new live gig that's going to happen. So Transmission 001, headlined by the Flaming Lips in the shadow of the Lovell Telescope. And this is going to be in July. Everyone's really, really excited about this. So you're going to see lots of yogcasters there trying to sneak in astronomy-related events as well. The new visitor centre will be up and running by then. And you're going to have free entry prior to the show starting. So you can explore astronomy and then listen to the Flaming Lips play an awesome gig. And it's not just the Flaming Lips playing there. There's a variety of other bands that will be performing as well. So it should be a really good event. I guess the dish won't be doing much in the way of observing, given the vast number of mobile phones that are probably going to be in the vicinity. It's supposed to be doing something special but no one knows what it is yet. So I'm hoping for a giant speaker effect. Oh, I like it if they're just beaming the concert into space. That'd be cool. They performed in the dish would be awesome. And here's me just hoping it gets filled with ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) What, you just need a giant spoon to go in the dish as well? (laughs) Just got an image of the dish full of ice cream with a giant cherry. So as we said, we have no idea what this special thing is going to be. On Facebook, David White has told us that he's listening to all the back episodes of the Jodcast and it inspired him to look at M45, which is the lovely Pleiades cluster. You can see it with the naked eye, but he looked at it through binoculars and says, it's amazing. And we agree. Robert Siddy, apologies if I've pronounced that wrong, I think he's in New York. He claims to be our biggest fan and says he listens to the Jodcast all the time. So as you're our biggest fan, I assume you mean literally all the time. 
non-stop. And he also encourages anyone who's in New York to join the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. They have the enviable web address www.aaa.org. And we'll link to that in the show notes because they do lectures and also have observation nights and lots of information about the sky on their website. So they do indeed sound like a fine organization if you happen to live in New York State. So if you also want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. So it only remains to say a big thank you to Professor Derek Ward-Thompson and Dr Jay Farihi for being interviewed. The editors for this episode were Adam Averson, Melanie Jondra, Kat Maguire and Mark Perver. And the newly conferred title of producer goes to me, Mark Perver. So, until next time, jod on. Bye! Bye. Bye.